Welcome to Hear Tell, a podcast about true stories and how we tell them. Hear Tell is a project of the Low Residency MFA program in narrative nonfiction at the University of Georgia's College of Journalism and Mass Communication. I'm Diana Keough. On today's show, I speak with James Murdoch. James is a poet, writer, and educator from Jasper County, Georgia. A 2021 graduate of UGA's MFA program, Murdoch writes mainly about nature and agriculture and how the two topics intersect with the human spirit. In 2019, he published a book of poetry, Think, Dear Daughter, which was a finalist for the Reed Environmental Writing Award. James joined me in the studio to talk about his article, Orange is the New Peach, which was recently featured in Food Stories, Writing That Stirs the Pot, an anthology published by The Bitter Southerner. James, you are not a typical student that enters this narrative nonfiction program. Kind of talk to me a little bit about your background and how you started out your career. Yeah. Is there a typical student? Um, Good question. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so I started uh, writing many years ago. Poetry was my first love. Yeah, I kind of did that for a while and just fiddled with poems. I've always... Uh, loved the idea of writing. Um, I'm not sure what was like the catalyst or if there was a singular event that made me want to get into it. But um, I love poetry, but I but I wanted to tell stories too. And um, I had kind of uh, an odd experience um, after college. Like most of my friends moved to the city after college, but I moved to the middle of nowhere um, on a mountain up in the Blue Ridge Mountains, like really like deep into the woods. And first I worked for an environmental education center. And then I took a job with Amicalola State Park as a interpretive ranger. And I would give guided hikes and things and animal presentations. Kind of fell in love with the stories of that area but also the settler and Native American lore, most importantly. I suppose I had a desire to tell those stories, the things that I had learned and the experiences that I had in that kind of unique place. So how has this love of the environment, the love of the land and the lore kind of creeped into the stories that you tell now? The first writer I fell in love with was Thoreau and... I think my dad gave me a copy of Walden when I was like 12 years old, and he was like, you know, you're not going to understand this now, but like maybe later. And it was it was like 10 years later, I read Walden completely. And at that time, I was I had just moved like deep into the woods and in a little cabin. That just changed everything for me. Maybe maybe that was the catalyst, actually, now that I think of it. I grew up in South Georgia, so I grew up in, like, the sandy plains of uh, what they call the coastal empire down there, um, west of Savannah. Living in the Blue Ridge Mountains was, like, a totally exotic experience for me, and um, there was, like, a beautiful, clear creek that ran in front of the cabin. I started kind of studying the the plants of the place and, you know, the wildlife and um, just completely fell in love with with the natural world there. And I had always, you know, liked the outdoors, but that place in particular just sort of ignited 
like a new love of nature and a new appreciation of solitude and the place I was in. Which kind of a great segue into this piece that we're going to be talking about. Can you give me a summary of this Oranges Are the New Peach? Yeah. I kind of started writing down stories about things I experienced. This story was actually inspired by home to the place where I was raised. It was Christmas time, and so oranges, most citrus, like, ripens over the winter. So that's kind of like the harvest time. Immediately, I walked into my mom's house, and in her kitchen was this big bowl full of really bright little, like, tangerine-looking citrus by the leaves on them they were the leaves were like really bright and perky too and I was like you know where did you get these I've never really seen anything like this with the leaves on it my mom was like this guy in Statesboro which is close to where I grew up grows them and sells them I was just kind of I grew up there and I, I think like a few people had lemon trees or something I remember as a kid they would have to like put big blankets on them and, like, heating lamps to keep them alive because it was so cold in, in winter. This was, like, 2018 or 19. I was like, um, you know what? Like, this is crazy. I hear some people talk about how, you know, stories find them or whatever. I don't know that I've ever felt that, but I, I felt that in this moment. I felt like, well, this is something that I have to investigate, like, immediately. and I, I need to like, while I'm here for Christmas, I need to go to this farm and see what's going on here. So tell me what happened after that. I went and found the farm. I think I might have done some trespassing. Uh, but, like, I, <laughs> I parked in the edge of one of their groves and kind of walked through it a little bit. And I didn't see anyone around. Actually, the middle of the farm is on a private drive, so I couldn't just drive up in there. When I got back to where I live now, I was... I looked into it, and I called the farmer, and he's still, like, in the middle of harvest, so he's like, I don't have time for this. I think you got a really interesting story to tell here. So, like, gave me the number, I think, of his younger partner, and I told him, and he was like, yeah, you should come spend a day with us or something. And So walk me through kind of the reporting process that you went through. And, again, as a yeah. poet... You're not necessarily reporting or interviewing or even doing this kind of writing. Kind of walk me through that transition you had to make from poetry yeah. to actually reporting, interviewing, and writing a narrative piece like this. It's funny, like the more I think back uh, about the time, like the sort of times that I was inspired to tell stories, the more it's kind of clear because I did, I had a little bit of reporting experience. I spent I was teaching at the time in Edenton, Georgia, which is close to where I live now, home of Alice Walker. I worked a little part-time gig writing some community stories for the local newspaper there, which was amazing, by the way. It's a really good small-town newspaper. I met Janice Ray through the newspaper and met Alice Walker for her birthday, met Valerie Boyd like for the first time in Edenton. Some of our best writers are like from that little area. I had a little bit of reporting experience just covering some community things, and maybe that inspired me to go back to school. I'm really not sure, but poetry was my love and still is. I think there is a way that the two can be married, and 
it's kind of strange. Like, I, you don't, or at least I have not thought about journalism as, like, art, although it is, and I think every journalist, like, is an artist to some degree. Well, and you say that, but as a journalist, poetry is something I have to work at, you know, to be, to pile on and layer on the details and to see the world the way you see it. Yeah. Is not natural for me. So, kind of walk me through how do you integrate that type of writing into the writing that you're doing now? I think that's like one of the coolest things about this program is like a is like the new form of journalism. You know, the the narrative form of journalism, which is, you know, we talk about new journalism and the the history of like '60s and '70s journalists starting to insert themselves into the stories and like kind of include their own story. And I think that really opens it up as an art form uh, because traditionally journalists might have been told uh, to sort of keep yourself out and be as objective as possible. I don't know. Like, to me, looking back at that, that just seems like total baloney. Like, everything is subjective, you know? And the storyteller is as much a part of the story as any detail of the story well, and you had to make a decision in this piece to put yourself in. Was that an immediate decision you made, or you just didn't even consider not putting yourself into it? Kind of talk to me about that. It was a it was a total decision. I actually wrote a couple drafts where I was not in the story at all, and I was actually working with John T. Edge at the time. At I don't remember exactly, but I think he encouraged me to like include like how I had found this thing as part of the story. It really opened up for me when I went back and told, you know, the intro part about seeing the citrus in my mom's kitchen. And um, so, you know, back to the poetry thing, like, yeah, poetry is, 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 is very much like an observational art form for me. And I love the Zen Buddhist I love I love the old uh, Zen Buddhist poetry, poets like Basho. Very simplistic, uh, so it's very, you know, uh, simple words, simple observations of nature or whatever's in their environment, but these are like very direct, straightforward observations that are meant to sort of spark a kind of mental state in the reader, a sort of awakening uh, in a way. That's the kind of poetry that I love. Uh, simplistic language, simple questions, uh, pointing out things that are there at that time. I read Basho, and it's like I'm there with him. He writes about like a horse pissing beside his bed when he's trying to go to sleep, you know? And I've never read anything that's like so alive. So trying to tell stories that incorporate that kind of aliveness. It doesn't have to be deep, and it doesn't have to be ultra-flowery language. It doesn't have to be romantic. I mean, it can be uh, some unfortunate truth that you're pointing out or some ugly thing that, uh, for me, just causes it to be real and to be awake. And so when you were writing this, how did that 
thinking that philosophy kind of play out in the really is an economy of words in this piece and how did that hmm. thinking kind of play out in as you were writing this I'm glad you noticed that because I tried to trim it down like quite a lot I think it was like outrageous to begin with but <laughs> through the help of some great mentors I trimmed it down. I'm not always good at that simplicity of language. I tend to go very big and then and then say, like, you know, where can I really simplify? I want to write scenes in which the reader feels uh, like they could be standing there um, and observing the place. And how do you do that? Probably, like, uh, very direct sentences that sort of uh, show, or, or at least I'm trying to show directly what I'm seeing in that moment. I'm not so much trying to reflect on the scene as much as I am trying to just say what's there. Maybe a reflection comes later, or, or maybe it comes in the middle of it, but I'm trying to really place people there in that moment. And when you're reporting... When you're there, are you closing your eyes? Are you taking notes? Are you how does how does it happen at the time? Yeah, I record everything. So, um, and you know, I think I'm like nothing without recording. And so, thank God for technology. Because, uh, but even even in recordings, like I I go back and and listen to like natural sounds, like not only what people are saying, but uh, what bird is calling? Uh, what like what insect uh, can I hear? I take notes of some people do this and some don't, but I, to me it's important to know specifically what tree is there, what kind of vegetation or what what the environment is made up of, uh, what it what it looks like. Like know it in the moment or not. You also did that in this piece. It wasn't just a tangerine yeah and the way that you described it was so beautiful because I could see it and I could also taste it oh great and uh and there had to be some I mean again as a poet this language and the painting using words to paint and putting me there Mm -hmm. must come natural to you because it was so evident in this piece. But it, was there a deliberate intention on your part to make sure I could taste and could see and could tell the difference between just a tangerine and this amazing piece of fruit? Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's, it's, uh, it's not all me. I, something I think about in revising is, um, am I only explaining what I see? Because there is a lot more sensing a place. I mean, there's smell and taste and touch and what I hear. Uh, when I'm revising, I'm, I'm always trying to go back and and to myself, you know, did I adequately describe this in a sensual way? Uh, Josina Guess edited this story, and she, I remember specifically, asked me to describe the taste of one of the oranges and I think I had I had done it in a very simple way, and she said, no, I want to know specifically what it tastes like. And then I sent something back to her, and she was like, oh, this is, this is cool, see? The great South Georgia nature writer, Janice Ray, has been a mentor to me for 
many years. She's one of the people who encouraged me to pursue writing. I went to a workshop at her house years ago, way down close to the Altamaha River in South Georgia, and the whole day was about writing with your with all your senses. And so it really kind of woke me up to that. Which is something that, as a journalist, we don't necessarily, we're, we're in too much of a hurry. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So, again, something I've always appreciated about the way that you write. You're a middle school English teacher now. Uh, high school now. High school. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a couple questions. How did this program change not only your writing but also your teaching? And how do you fit in this whole side hustle you've got with the writing, with your teaching duties? I don't know. I mean, that's what I mean. I'm, um, I haven't always been good at it, and going through this program inspired me to spend all the time studying this stuff and reading a lot of books, and I feel more like a writer now or someone who's on the writer's journey. Time is a precious thing. I'm more dedicated now in my life than at other times. I want to do it every day. And I have a goal of 500 to 700 words a day or revising or reading or something. And so I get up early. I get up at 5 a.m. And that's my morning routine before the day gets going. I make that space. It's hard sometimes, but I'm tired. So how has it changed your teaching? Well, I, I teach uh, older high school kids now. I did teach middle school in Neatonton, but now I'm over in the town I live in, which is Monticello, not to be mistaken for Monticello. But it's it's incre- it's changed everything. It's it's changed. I mean, I, I once heard someone say, like, you'll never read a book the same again, right? And that's so true. It's I I hesitate to say, but I like maybe enjoyed reading more before I did this, but (laughs) now it's like, I see what the author did here. I see why they made that choice. Uh, I see why it's organized in this way. I see why it moves. This transition is here, and I see why this flashback is here. So that has informed me a great deal on why authors do and why writers do the things they do. I think I'm a better teacher because I'm able to pass that to my students. And that's like written in the standards. That's something that we're supposed to be teaching is author's choice and organization of texts and all these things um, that come down to the actual work of writing. And so, yeah, I've been lucky. It's really informed uh, me in that way. So getting back to this piece... I think of not only the environmental, you know, being an environmental writer, but also writing about home and place as a character. Yeah. So there's a lot of that in here. And kind of talk, you know, to those that are listening, how did you make that choice and how did you end up doing it like you did and why? I think about this quote a lot, the Western writer Wallace Stegner said something like, tell me where you're from and I'll tell you who you are. And, you know, that's a simplification, of course, and and I think he understood that. But there's some truth to that. We're, We're not only 
we're not only a product of families and people, we are a product of places. I like get emotional like thinking about it. But we are raised in a sense by our environment. The water, the air, the the trees, everything plays the, the seasons of a place play into sort of how especially young people perceive reality. I don't know that you can really separate people from place. Uh, you know, you can travel and it kind of opens your mind, right? But the reason it opens your mind is because you hopefully have a home uh, that you are connected to. And when you see other parts of the world, uh, your mind is sort of expanded. But place has like traditionally informed like what kind of foods were available before kind of globalization. And, you know, you can get uh, fruit from the Pacific Islands at your local grocery store or whatever. But, but traditionally, um, it has informed what you eat and uh, the kind of people you're around, the kind of characters you encounter. And um, I don't know, that's just something, that's something that's like awfully important to me for some reason. I, I think it's really when the character of a place is overlooked. And from a, from a literary standpoint, I think back about like the naturalist writing of like Jack London and things like that where it's very obvious like the place is a character because it's like freezing cold it's dangerous right like literally the place can kill you I mean there are dangerous places there are safe places there are places just based on what we have experienced there are a sacred place to us or a desecrated place places can, you know, your understanding of a place can change. It can be like a dynamic character, right? It can be like um, it went from bad to good or hopefully not from good to bad. I'm not a Luddite or anything. Like, I don't hate technology. I think it's very useful. One of the unfortunate things about being, like, sucked into screens is that it obscures the place you're in and you spend less time sort of thinking about and and being curious about your surroundings and, and more time in kind of like an abstract dimension. You started getting emotional when you started <laughs> talking about place. Why? Oh, wow. You're going to make me like more emotional. But um, I, you know, it's just, it's something that is, like, vital to the human experience. I'm not really a religious person, but if I had a religion, it would be that, you know? It would be... Home? Yeah, yeah. It it would be, like, you know, connectedness to, to the place you're in. Uh, there is, there is a magic, like, like, seeing the turning of seasons... You know, and and knowing the subtle changes, um, knowing what's sort of normal and what's abnormal, and when particular wildflowers come and when particular birds migrate through. 
I guess I get emotional because that's like, that's like, I mean, I've been lucky to connect with a lot of great people, but that's like the realest form of connection I've ever known. And that's what fascinated me about this uh, orange story so much is um, here was like a 70-something-year-old man who grew up like on this farm that he ultimately transformed into a citrus farm. And um, so, you know, and he's a South Georgia man. Like he's, I, I don't know Joe Franklin's politics, so I shouldn't assume, but I assume he's on the conservative side. It's a conservative place generally. Um, but... And I was, so I sort of went into it like afraid to talk about climate change and, um, you know, sort of hinted around a little like, you know, I grew up here, I never saw anything like this, like what's the difference? Why can you do this now? And I know traditionally this is not a place that you grow citrus. And uh, immediately he was like, well, it's not as cold as it used to be. Like, when I was a kid, this is Joe Franklin, when I was a kid, like, it was damn cold. And the winter, it was cold in November and November and December. So that was fascinating to me that, like, without science, like, he didn't need to read scientific papers to determine that he could plant citrus in this place. He just knew that. He was, like, connected enough to the place that uh, he thought, you know, this will work because it, because it's warmer now. It's also a really good lesson to not approach subjects with kind of a bias. Yeah, absolutely. So anything else I haven't asked you that you wanted to make sure that you talked about or shared with us? Hmm. Well, I mean, I'd like to encourage every writer um, or you know, poet, journalist, whoever, um, and every human being, like, you know, connect connect with the place you're in, connect with your home, uh, find a special place to you, and seek out solitude, and um, turn the phone off, you know, or something I try to do intentionally now is because... I'm on social media. Um, I use social media like anyone, like, and but I just try to be more intentional about it now, um, or the older I get. Uh, so, when I take walks with my phone in my pocket, like, when I take pictures of things, I'm like thinking about sharing them online, or I'm like, you know, adding them to my story or whatever. And I got to a place where I really disliked the idea that I was maybe taking pictures for that reason. I don't know. There's just like a superficial layer there, which isn't, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying I wasn't observing the, and I live on a beautiful farm, so I'm, I'm really lucky. I live in rural Georgia. I don't always jive with the local culture, but I, but I'm lucky enough to live on a really beautiful farm and I like to take long walks around the farm 
I mean, daily, hopefully, at least for like 30 minutes or an hour a day. I'm going to have you read. I chose this passage. It's toward the beginning of the piece. Uh, For me, it kind of holds that observational quality. It's um, the first uh, day I went to the farm, and there's like a crisis going on. Uh, So immediately, I've I felt like this guy's kind of too busy for me, and um, I get there, and he's got, like, no time for me. Uh, one of his drivers didn't show up that morning, so he's, like, pissed off, and he's on the phone. So, yeah, it's just, like, the first few moments of, like, observing him and observing his office, and then I walk outside and take a look, so... The bottom of Joe Franklin's shirt pocket holds an ink stain. His mind moves too busily for bleeding pens. He sports white tennis shoes and a scruffy mustache from which a strong septuagenarian voice pushes patient words. When I asked to visit in his free time, he said, when you work with citrus, there is no free time. Still, he welcomed me on a Saturday in mid-harvest. When we meet, Franklin is agitated. A delivery driver flaked on him, and the clock ticks at a market in Savannah. His blue eyes squint over a cell phone as he paces, and I know to stay out of the way. Franklin's office, a tin building doubling as a packing center, swims with relics of fishing expeditions. I examine some color-drained photographs, groups of men smiling behind bounties of pickerel, and I'm drawn toward an open, sunny garage door to inspect the scenery on the other side of the office. The sky is cloudless, and an aroma of peroxide and citrus peel lingers in the warm winter air. Out in the light, long rows of glossy trees disappear into a backdrop of sycamore and pine. I have entered a strange dimension, I think, where two typically distinct environments merge into one bizarre ecotone. I imagine finding a few ugly trees clinging to life. What I discover is a full-scale citrus farm where citrus farms do not belong. As far as I can see, trees gushing with bright globes bask in the sunlight. Voices interrupt my trance. A younger, reddish, blonde-haired man breaks the tension with the news that the driver has come and gone. Franklin breathes, knowing his citrus will make it to Forsyth Farmer's Market in Savannah. The morning is born again. James, this has been fun. Thank you so much, Diana. Thank you for inviting me. It's been great. Right now, James is working on a book of essays about our connection to the natural world. In the show notes, we've included links to a couple of the poems and poets James mentioned in my conversation with him. This episode of Hear Tell was produced by me, Diana Keough, and edited by Amy Padula, with special thanks to Josina Guess. Many thanks to MFA director Moni Basu for nurturing this writing program and this podcast. We hope you enjoyed this show, and will take the time to leave us a review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please share it with friends. Thanks for listening.